everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Thank you so much for coming to the Katie Helper Show. Today is going to be an amazing show, an amazing lineup. We have three guests for you today, and they're all wonderful guests. We are going to be speaking with the inimitable journalist, filmmaker, and writer, John Pilger. We're also going to be speaking to Susan Kong, who is an associate professor of political science at John Jay College, a member of the executive council of the Professional Staff Congress at CUNY, And we're going to be talking to Stephen Donziger, who is the human rights and environmentalist lawyer, who, as we know, because we've had him on before, uh, helped uh, win a historic judgment against Chevron for poisoning the water and the people of Ecuador. He helped win that settlement, and it was not paid. And instead of it being paid, they actually prosecuted and persecuted Stephen. And the United States Supreme Court just ruled on his case. So we're going to get an update about that. Uh, Before we start, of course, everyone make sure you hit that like. That is a great way to fight back at our corporate overlords who try to suppress this show. So make sure you hit the like. Also subscribe, press subscribe, and then hit the bell. That way you'll be subscribed and you won't miss any of these. If you want to support the show, you can at Patreon, patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And that's when you can see the entire stream that we do. If you're watching live, you get to see the entire stream. But if you're watching later, uh, part of it may be Patreon only. And we only do that so that this show can happen. Uh, not to get rich. It's just so that we can uh, do the show, pay people to work on the show. So the show really couldn't happen with you guys. Without you guys. Without you guys. See, I'm so nervous because I'm so excited about our guests. Uh, all right. So. We're going to just get the show started. Uh, join me after the call, after the stream at Colin. I'll be taking your calls at Colin right after the stream. And I'm going to introduce our first guest, um, who probably does not need an introduction, but uh, we'll do it anyway, just so everyone's on the same page. John Pilger has written dozens of books, including Heroes, which is one of my favorite books, Hidden Agendas, and Freedom Next Time. He's made over 60 documentaries, including Vietnam, The Quiet Mutiny, Year Zero, The Silent Death of Cambodia, The Secret Country, The First Australians Fight Back, The War You Don't See, The Coming War on China, and many more that we don't have time to list because he's so prolific. He's appeared as a contributor on BBC Television Australia, BBC Radio, BBC World Service, London Broadcasting, ABC Television, ABC Radio Australia, among others. And his writing has appeared at The Guardian, The Independent, New Statesman, The New York Times, The L.A. Times, uh, and many more places. And you can find out more about him and find out, find all his work at johnpilger.com. So without any further ado, welcome, John Pilger. Thank you, Katie. Very good to be on the show. Thank Thanks you. for having me. Of course. Thank you so much for joining. And look, you have people in the audience saying in the chats that you make them proud to be an Australian or proud to be an Aussie. So I don't know if that's welcome or... Uh, demoralizing things to hear, but I'm assuming it's a good thing. So you are someone who I could ask so many questions to. We could talk about so many things, but I think that you and I had chatted a little bit and you thought it would be a good idea just to pull back the curtain, the fourth wall a little bit, to start by talking about 
propaganda and how unrelenting it is. So I want to ask you how you define propaganda. Well, propaganda, the term was first used in a prolific sense by Walter Lippmann and uh, then Edward Bernays over 100 years ago. Interesting, Bernays, who was the... Uh, who was a super PR man during the First World War, was given the job of cleaning up the image of the First World War, a spectacularly difficult job. And he that's when he invented the term public relations because he realized that propaganda was a word that gave a bad name to war. It suggests you're not telling the truth. It suggests you're lying, and all this is very true. So the term public relations came out of that. That's always fascinating to me because we accept PR, public relations, as part of our usual discourse, you know, that it's, I don't know about benign, but It's reasonably harmless. Perhaps it's about selling things we don't want, but don't have to be worried about. But in fact, it's quite a sinister term. It's propaganda. So propaganda got really underway then and uh, has never looked back. And where do you think that the most dangerous propaganda can be found now? Well, the most dangerous propaganda is coming out of the home of propaganda, and that's where you are in the United States. It's very dangerous because we now have uh, something I've never known in my career, what could be called, I suppose, politely, a complete consensus in the mainstream on the current war going on in Europe. But it's a particularly important one, this, because it's really a proxy war between the United States and Russia and that, of course, can lead to a catastrophe on a scale that we haven't known before. Um, so um, that's, that's where propaganda is most dangerous. But propaganda is dangerous every day in our lives when we're, when we're told, when we're persuaded to buy something, whether it's a consumer object that's not very good for us or it's an idea that's very bad for us. Uh, that's propaganda. Uh, the news, I say, these days, not only on Ukraine, but on most things, is propaganda. Uh, I find television news, which is still the primary source of most people's information in Western countries and many other places, uh, I find it unwatchable because I have to sit there and either um, get angry or deconstruct it. It doesn't inform me. So the, the idea of informing objectively, as, as objectively as one is able to, has, has gone, gone almost completely. And how do you, I've heard you use this term before, deconstructing the news. How does one do that? Because it seems very labor intensive. Yeah. It's very hard. I mean, I think it's okay for the likes of me and you because that's our business. We Every day we're reading, we're finding out, we're navigating through the net. Uh, we're looking for uh, facts and truth as best we, 
we can. Most people don't have the time to do that if they're doing other work or, as my mother used to say, they're doing a real job. Uh, and so they, it, it's, it's not fair. It's just not fair on those people we are meant to serve. The whole notion of journalism as a public service of serving people has just gone. It's become a branch of public relations. But that's what real journalism is. Um, and if, then that question would only arise in a very esoteric way. It's it's something people would be conscious of that we have to serve. We have to give people as ma as many of the facts about something as we possibly can, not some propaganda spin. Right. I mean, you have to know so much. I mean, it's hard for me. Um, you obviously, I'm not comparing myself to you because you're um, extremely prolific. Uh, but I, I I enjoy doing med media criticism, and it. And even for me, it's incredibly labor intensive because you need to know what you need to be looking at to disprove yeah. the other thing you're looking at. And, yeah. and that's totally overwhelming, especially, as you said, if people don't already have an orientation towards that, they won't even know that, that that's a thing to do. So yeah. that's probably one of the most frustrating things about, about media propaganda is people not knowing it's propaganda, not having the tools to even realize that. Yes, but it's, Katie, it's very interesting the way people get it very quickly. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, that's no doubt why many people uh, uh, watch you and watch others and who, because they, I think people are now so hungry for an alternative, uh, you know, a correlation of this is that the reputation of journalists has nosedive. Uh, it's probably the lowest it's ever been, and rightly so. That's where mainstream journalism uh, deserves to be. But that's left our audiences disorientated. What do they believe? The question faces thinking people. Other people, the news is just watching paint dry, you know, that's probably the best way to do it. But it's so much effort, so much official effort, so much power and resources are put into distorting the news by those who start wars, take over other countries, uh, and wish to manipulate our whole sense of understanding, even our consciousness that it has to be important. Uh, you know, it was General Piraeus, the, the, the no unlamented Piraeus, who uh, when I think he was the general running Afghan, the Afghanistan debacle, he, he spat it out in an interview and said, well, most important uh, uh, people are the people at home. Not the Taliban. Uh, yeah. Not worried about the Taliban. Uh, and what he was really saying, the subtext of this, is that our enemy are the people at home. Because unless we can fool them, then we're not doing the job. Right. 
I think he also uh, let it slip that it was not in America's best interest to be uh, involved in Israel the way we were. Um, yeah. He may have had that oh, as a moment of truth. Oh, he um, did. Which, yeah. but, but not in a critical, I mean, I think he probably, I'm sure he regretted that. I'm sure he got chastised after doing that. Um, but, um, and by the way, you mentioned your mother saying journalism isn't a real job. Uh, well, I went into journalism. I decided when I was only, when I'd finished high school, and I decided that uh, they then had here a very good, uh, like an apprenticing right. cadet, uh, that I would be, that I would join a newspaper and not go to university. Uh, both my, my, my mother, who was a teacher, my father. Elsie, right? Uh, who was a, uh, um, uh, a working man, were both dismayed at this. Um, and especially when I announced it was going to be journalism, my father then, he was ahead of the game, had a very healthy distrust of everything he read in newspapers. So there his son was heading into that, um, as it was once called, I think I can't remember by, by whom, the Legion of Liars. He was, he was quite upset. They got, they got used to it pretty quickly. Yeah. And, uh, I hope I uh, put their minds at rest. And you can read again more about um, John's parents. And I love the name Elsie, by the way. But you can read more about them at Heroes, which is such a great book. And it's 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 in my bookshelf at my parents when I used to tape uh, my show up there. So, uh, but then I was looking at it, I realized I'm covering the title, so I'm gonna have to move it and make it more visible, so it doesn't just say H E basically. Um, but what else? I mean. Do you think that there's a you, you brought up Ukraine and it is somewhat unprecedented, this consensus around Ukraine that you see in places that or I'm at least seeing in places where I usually find political agreement, even people who I agree with on other things. I find the world of people who are who accept who see this as a proxy war as opposed to seeing this as a Hitlerian march towards conquering the world, uh, which we've actually seen that kind of ridiculous language. But I find that fewer people than I, than I would think see it as a proxy war. And I, I feel like a lot of people I used to get along with uh, and agree with politically are on that other side where they see this as an unprovoked war, where they see this as uh, reminiscent of World War II, and uh, they don't want to stop the proxy war. Why do you think that is? Why is this an issue that is dividing people who sometimes or often are see eye to eye? Well, first of all, they're ignorant. And there's one way of, cu of curing ignorance, and that is to find out. And the wonderful thing today uh, that somewhat counters the fact that we have such propaganda is that you can go through cyberspace and find uh, uh, real journalism. You can find real analysis and you can find facts that takes time, as we've discussed. Uh, I think one of the problems there, Katie, is that too often, and I think this is in the U.S. more than anywhere, there is a, 
uh, a kind of band of brothers and sisters, so-called, called the left. Well, there isn't. It's just not true. Uh, there are varying differences, radical differences, as there's always been. Uh, and uh, for people to regard themselves as all belonging under one tent uh, so that they kind of have the same point of view and the same bigotry and the same ignorance is slightly ridiculous. So um, I'm sure you're not worried about standing up to people like that. From people who announce, and I'm always rather suspicious of people who keep declaring their political allegiance, right. um, no, left, I'm left, I'm left, you know, or John, I used to admire you. Oh, yeah, that's another great one. What happened to you? What happened to you? So, yeah, yeah, sure you did. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, the, 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 it, it's from the liberal, and that's a, a term that is so flexible, really elastic, but in the United States it has a particular power. Perhaps it's called left liberal. And it's from that source that so much, so many of our problems have come. Mm. That doesn't mean to say that commentators like you and me are turning into, into terrible reactionaries. It's ridiculous. Right. We're not. Uh, quite the opposite. But uh, it, it means that, that the illusions created by liberalism, particularly American liberal, when I went to live and work in the U.S. Uh, and, and John, by the way, just so people know, is from Australia. And so when he's saying here, he's, that's, he's talking about Australia. Yeah. Well, I was then, most of my career has been in the U.K. where I've worked right. for British newspapers and television, and I was sent to the U.S. in my uh, early 20s, when I, not long after I first arrived in England. Uh, and uh, it, the power of liberalism struck me, the power of its hypocrisies, uh, the power of its, its kind of declared ownership of certain issues, and yet the power of its in, inaction uh, of leaving things be or actually opposing things. That's the kind of thing when you, um, I certainly get the same thing as you, as people on the so-called left say to you, uh, how can you possibly be like that? You know, we are both of left. Well, no, we're, we're not. Le left actually is a, is a noble expression. It shouldn't be misused. Right, yeah. Um, it is, yeah, I, I just, I guess I expected more from certain people. And what I just find so surprising is that even after it's shown that the West has gotten the way of peace in, when it comes to Ukraine, you still have people saying, well, yeah, but we shouldn't, there shouldn't be a negotiation yet. There shouldn't be diplomacy because that just empowers Putin. Well, why, why allow people to be killed? Look, right. Okay, you know, any invasion of a sovereign country is wrong. There's no question about that. And it's stated very clearly in the, uh, uh, in the Nuremberg Principles. Uh, but, you know, you, the difference between the invasion of, of uh, Ukraine and the invasion of Iraq 
was that one was entirely unprovoked and the other one was entirely provoked. And that, that is a huge but. That but has to be understood because if you don't understand that but, then you deny yourself background and context to something. You deny yourself an understanding. The idea that we should all go around approving something, I don't approve of the invasion of Ukraine, but I'm determined to understand it. Uh, and it doesn't seem all that difficult to me to understand because I've watched it over the last 20, 30 years uh, head that way, head towards the western borders of Russia. There's no, there's no question about that. That was the aim, was to break up the Russian Federation. It was the aim in 1919 after the revolution, was to destroy the Soviet Union. Uh, the denial of history, the denial that the Red Army played the pivotal role in winning the Second World War are all part of this. Now, it's you go much deeper when you then if we try to examine why, why do we have this thing about Russia? Well, it's it's multifaceted. It does have to do with a kind of, I suppose, economic, except, you know, Russia today is a capitalist country, pretty much. Uh, it's it's about it's about in many ways, it's about the other, it's about Eurasia. They're not quite us. Uh, they come from a, a different, many of them come from a, a different part of the planet, those strange people on the steps that came down. Uh, who are they? They're, uh, um, and it's also ridiculous because they could be asking the same of us. You know, uh, you're speaking from an immigrant country, uh, and so am I. Uh, and it, 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 it's, it's the, and the same, the same can be applied, I find, to China, uh, the willful ignorance of China, uh, of understanding the changes that have gone on to China. Just even saying that in sections of social media, qualifies you to be called an apologist for the, right. the Chinese Communist Party. It's just, just absurd. I first went to China in the year after Mao died. I went a couple of times in the meantime, but then I saw it in all its extraordinary changes in growth about seven or eight years ago, and I couldn't believe my eyes. I couldn't believe what I've seen and hearing. I couldn't believe, uh, although I believed pretty quickly, the, the satisfaction of people with their lives and their country, whereas you and I live in societies where people are highly dissatisfied. Um, why was this so? These are questions. They're society questions, but they're political questions as well. But we don't even begin to ask in the media. Right. What one of the things I loved in your documentary, the uh, the coming war in China, was when you interviewed someone who said, "In America, you can change parties, but not policies, and in China, you can change. Uh, you can't change the party, but you can change policies." Exactly. <laughs> it was wonderful. Yeah. 
I agree with that. Yeah, it was a great line, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was extraordinary. Um, that was from, uh, <coughs> well, that was from himself. His name is Eric Lee. He, um, you know, he confused the hell out of people trying to understand China because he's a, he's a stalwart member of the party. Uh, he's also a venture capitalist. Uh, he was educated in the United States. Uh, he fuses both sides of uh, the world, both the American world and the Chinese world, together into this fearsome intelligence and understanding um, of how of how the world is run. Uh, there's so much to find out in countries like China. I I spent I spent so much time there listening that I want to very much want to go back and and listen some more. I'll make up my own mind later, perhaps. But it doesn't mean, of course, you have to keep throwing in this caveat, don't you? Which doesn't mean to say I approve. I don't approve or that I'm even making a judgment. But understanding is everything. And we have so much to learn from the Chinese about that. They take such a long view of everything that I think they're on their way, really. I, the, as long as we're not blown up by nuclear weapons in a, an ill-fated war, I think China is the greatest economic and technological and perhaps even cultural power will emerge. I don't think it'll dominate. I don't think it'll dominate at all. It's how the old world, the world of the British world, the American world, even the world down here, will come to terms with it. That's the question, how they come to terms with it. But benefit, you know, in Australia here, the biggest trading customer is China. And yet they have led on behalf of the United States, by saying they, I suppose it's a we, have led the China bashing campaign. The China is coming, you know, as if by the force of gravity. They're going to fall down on us. Uh, they're going to occupy us. They're going to take us over. Uh, insulting China day after day. China, with, <laughs> China withdrew all its contracts. The economy would just fall into the Pacific. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Okay, guys, that was that not amazing? Everyone who liked that, give this a like. Give this stream a like. And also subscribe if you haven't already. And if you watch this live, you're in luck. You're going to get the whole stream. If you're watching this later and you want to see the whole stream, make sure you go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Also, John Pilger is one of the people who signed the Roger Waters petition. So Brad will put that link in again in the description. It's on change. And it's again, it's about Roger Waters being canceled. Um, let's talk about smeared. It's, it's, it's a coming full circle because Roger Waters is also a big supporter of Julian Assange, as is um, John Pilger. But anyway, the point is, speaking of, of all of these overlapping issues of Julian Assange and Israel and Palestine and the proxy war, we, are, we have this petition for Roger Waters because the German government has canceled one of his concerts, even though people have already bought tickets, obviously. And that's because they've smeared him as an anti-Semite. But don't go anywhere because we have two more guests, one of whom is someone who had something similar kind of in some ways, a little bit, not as bad, but a little bit Assange-ish. 
in that he's been um, paying the price for a crime that he did not commit, but that he exposed. But before we do that, we have a great, great, great guest coming on. We're just going to bring her onto the stream. Susan Kong, welcome. Thank you so much for joining. Can we hear you? Are you muted? Oops. Yes, I'm muted. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks for unmuting. Yes. And Susan is an associate professor of political science at John Jay College, a member of the executive council of the Professional Staff Congress, CUNY, Faculty and Professional Staff Union at CUNY, member of the NYC uh, Democratic Socialists of America. And she's joining us to speak out against a Medicare, quote unquote, reform for public sector worker retirees that's being pushed by NYC Mayor Eric Adams as a cost-saving measure. But uh, tell us tell us why it's not something that should be embraced, Susan. Okay, so just a little bit of background. Back under the de Blasio administration, I don't know how the exact details, but at one point, de Blasio administration's like, oh, hey, do you want like back pay and like increases for your workers? If so, we'll have to find cost-saving measures by taking away from the money that we would give to retirees. And not, not naming names, but uh, people were like, oh, sure, let's do it. Name names, name names. Uh, so I think that this included like the UFT, for example. But we're not here. To, I'm not here to criticize unions because I think union leadership is making the best possible choices that they think they can. Right. So, you know, right now we're kind of in a moment of like rock and hard place. And I think union leadership is trying to do what they can, given sort of the parameters that city government is offering to them, which, you know, the parameters are not like things that I would agree with. So another little bit of background, our mayor who, um, you know, he might not have a lot of swagger, but he's not really all that great at, you know, managing city budgets. So currently, um, I, I know that there is a $4.9 billion surplus budget. In addition to that, our city is bringing in more in tax revenues than projected. So all the austerity you hear about when you hear about like, you know, 15, $30 million cuts to things like our libraries, our you know, millions of dollars in the cuts to our school system, a lot of this austerity is imposed. Like it's, it's ideological. It's not like a, a budget balance sheet thing, no matter what anybody tells you. Okay, so there's money out there, but there's this need to find, like, I believe the number is $600 million cost savings. So the idea is that Mayor Adams has um, actually it started with the Blasio. It's been a couple of years now. But Mayor Adams has sort of run with this football that we're going to balance budgets on the backs of our retirees who are public sector workers and public sector workers, which I am one. So I've been at CUNY for 15 years now. So I'm a mid-career professional. Um, and uh, we often get paid less than our private sector counterparts. And part of the reason for that is that we get things like pensions. So I'm a mm, pension haver. So don't be too jealous. Uh, and part of our pensions include things like a continuation of the same kinds of medical care that we've had as you know, active service members. And right now, so maybe you saw this in the New York Times, but the Biden administration is actually cutting back on Medicare Advantage plans because we know that they defraud the government, right? They, they don't provide care and they're often just like full of it. But anyway, at this exact moment, Mayor Adams is trying to push about 20, 250,000 retirees. So municipal retirees, like people like if you're a conservative, you should be mad because these are like our first responders, right? Like our firefighters, our EM, our EMTs, um, you know, people who do sanitation, like uh, social service workers, teachers. Uh, they're being pushed onto Medicare Advantage plans with no choices, right? No ability to stay on the traditional Medicare plan. And so I'm no expert on health economics or health policy, but I'm a rank and file member of my union. And um, 
traditional Medicare is like, that's what we all want, right? When we talk about Medicare for all, we talk about, you know, people take who take Medicare, they're providing you care and it's at a reasonable price. The prices are negotiated by Medicare um, and the costs are all provided and covered by the, gov- the government, right? So it's not for profit. And Medicare Advantage is kind of like a Jedi mind trick, right? The idea is it sounds like Medicare, so it must be better than Medicare because it's an advantage. But in fact, Medicare Advantage is not Medicare. It's, it's like a way to trick seniors, kind of like, you know, those spam where they say, oh, click this link. Um, it's like a click this link for seniors where they say, oh, it's just like Medicare, but in fact, it's a for-profit driven enterprise. Okay, so to back up a little bit more, initially there was a, there was a proposal to move towards a Medicare Advantage plan to force all city retirees onto this plan. Um, but some unions fought back. Now, um, some unions agreed because they said that, you know, we do need to participate in a cost-saving measure, but about 26 unions, including the PSC, the Professional Staff Congress, which I'm a part of, they voted against it. And so this is sort of like an interesting thing because there's a split within the sort of the Municipal Labor Council. So uh, 26 municipal unions, including the PSC, they were like, no, we're not going to accept this. So even though a lot of the big unions did go along with it, what matters was that there's also independent organizing happening from retirees. Um, and so the PSC, we mobilized, we got our members, we mobilized with other retirees to like start bugging our city council members and saying, you know, we can't accept Mayor Adams's plan to like um, push these punitive um, Medicare Advantage plans that are for profit. They're, you know, they make their money by denying care, right? It's so mind boggling. I'm also like, in addition to being a DSA member and a union uh, member, I'm also a scholar of human rights. So it really sort of, you know, when you add that profit to the, the right, which is healthcare, it really does destroy it. Um, so they make their money by denying care. So could you imagine if you're a retiree and you need a procedure, but you have to go through this like managed organization that's saying, well, I don't think you really need that scan or that, you know, treatment or that chemo, right? So they're making decisions, bureaucrats who are responding to stake, uh, not stakeholders, to shareholders to make decisions about your healthcare, not doctors. Um, so basically, uh, because of this resistance, this organized um, response by which include the PSC and other unions, uh, we've been able to stop this from happening. Um, but now we're sort of at a pivotal moment where there is something called an option C. And option C is something that Mayor Adams could allow, which would basically make all the municipal retirees and their families give them default to participating in this Aetna-run Medicare Advantage plan, but then it would allow for retirees to opt out, right? To participate in that traditional Medicare program that, you know, people fought for, uh, that people delayed and deferred their compensation and other benefits for because they were expecting that when they retired. Um, and that's, you know, when, when you and I, who the Bernie folks, when we talk about Medicare for all, that's sort of the model that we're thinking of. Um, and so, this would basically still allow for cost savings. So I'm not an economist, but evidently it would still lead to about $33 million worth of cost savings. And there's still plenty of money that the city has and it's like, you know, uh, budget surplus to cover the shortfalls. And there's all sorts of ways that the city could engage in cost savings, right? So again, I'm not a health economist, but based on what I've seen, a lot of these costs come from hospital costs. And hospital costs for like the same procedures, they vary wi- wildly. Um, 
And so you <laughs> right. know, it's always presented. Austerity is always presented as something that's not ideological and it's just a pragmatic thing. But we all always but we all know that that's not true. All of right. these things are choices and framing and decisions and policy are, choices. So the result of very particular and specific political decisions about whose interests matter and whose interests don't. Right. And like there's all these problems with medical care in this country, which we can't get into right now. But like, you know, there's no reason that we can let that we should just let hospitals decide by themselves what procedures should cost. Right. Like that's not something that happens in other countries. Your your, uh, previous guest, John Pilger, was talking about privatization of NHS. Well, you know. This is a universal fight. It's not, you know, even though it seems like I'm talking about something very specific to New York, public sector retirees, which is not that huge, a quarter million people, it's actually a broader fight because this is happening across the country. Um, this is happening in other states. Um, and, you know, it's happening under a variety of Democratic and Republican leaderships at municipal, state, county levels. And as as he, he H-H-H-E-E writes, Ralph Nader's podcast talks in depth about the Medicare advantage, which he calls Medicare disadvantage. You guys it's may want to use that. It's the best term, right? I mean, we, yeah. we do use it, the term Medicare okay. disadvantage, right? Yeah. But the thing is that it's a little bit difficult to get, well, we'll call them active members, to think about this in the long term, because one of the things that the retirees, the activists tell me, um, is that we're all future retirees, right? If we're lucky. And we'll need healthcare the most at that end part of our life, right? Like, so I, I, I read somewhere once that we're most expensive like the year before we die, you know, and, I, and I've had two kids, right? So our medical care costs increase as we get older um, and like our ability to get certain kinds of care will affect our, our quality of life. And public sector workers, right? If, if this sort of is allowed to happen carte blanche, then we'll see like Medicare itself starting to slip away. And like, there's very few things that make up the US safety net right? Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, um, unemployment, and like to allow what little we have, this very like whole-filled hammock of, of a social safety net to just like continue to tatter away, will just leave Americans more and more vulnerable. And so if we think about it, like every stage of life is just increasingly challenging for people. Like I'm a parent, like I'm not in like childcare stage anymore, but like summer camp expensive, after school's expensive, I'm not even thinking about college costs, right? But college costs are through the roof. And then when they're done, housing costs are ridiculous, right? And then I got to worry about like, maybe I'll die because I won't be allowed to have a very preventable, I mean, uh, medical procedure that would save my life, you know, I don't know, in 30, 40 years. Uh, so we see how inhumane this is. Anyway, not, I don't want to be just a downer because it's really easy to be a downer. But, you know, if your listeners are interested in being part of the struggle, there's lots of things you can do, particularly if you're New York City-based. Um, or not, you know, you can always mean tweet Eric Adams. Yeah. I'm pro this. Okay. Yeah, everyone loves to mean tweet Eric Adams. Yeah. Um, that's what Twitter exists, right? Not for, not for unnecessary takes. It's to mean tweet p- powerful people. Okay. So you can send a letter to the mayor, the OLR commissioner and the city council. Um, so if you've got a city council representative, um, then write to them. Or if you're in the metro area, you know, and you might be someone with a relationship to municipal city workers, or if you're someone who just likes, you know, public servants. Um, and we have a link on our website, which is psc-cuny.com. And you can find like sort of little action letter. So we do it all for you, right? You don't have to uh, do any too much work on your own. We also have, if you are in New York City or if you like to yell at City Hall, which I 10 out of 10 recommend, we'll have a rally this Friday at noon in front of City Hall, which I believe is 250 Broadway um, on the Murray Broadway, Murray Street Broadway area. Um, to protest this, right? Because this is not 
just about 20, 250,000 retirees. It's about everybody's healthcare. Um, and if you're not active in your union, get active. And if you're not in a union, organize one. Um, and what you know, date is that? The I just want to, in case people watch this, I don't want them to turn up if they're watching this later. Uh, okay, what date is the, Friday? Uh, I think it is. Sorry, That's now I got to check my phone. Thirty first. Yeah. So noon. okay, March thirty first is a protest, right? Because yeah. the mayor has until April first. Oh uh, wow! To make a decision about whether he'll allow this option C to happen, which okay. will allow public sector retirees to opt out of Medicare Advantage and keep their traditional Medicare. Like, I hate that I have to, we have to even use like a descriptor. Like it's right. just be, there's Medicare and everything else. Right. Is Medicare and not Medicare. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, but everybody, Medicare is like trusted. So that's why they're able to sort of use this term to like trick people. Right. Well, thank you, Susan. Anything else you want to mention? Okay. Um, this is very embarrassing, but I, have started a podcast with another person in DSA. So it's not as great as your show. We're, we're like on a different level, but it's left on red and you can find us on Spreaker and all everywhere else that you, you see podcasts. And it's just two organizers based out of Queens talking about organizing and news and fun stuff too, like um, lifting weights. Oh, so, great. Yeah. Well, I, I um, gotta lift some weights. <laughs> it's right. good to see you, Katie. You uh, too. All right. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye Susan. Okay, guys, uh, we're going to bring on our next guest. That was wonderful. We're going to bring on our next guest. He's been on the show a bunch. I know everyone here loves him and supports him and cares about his struggle. And uh, I'm bringing on to this virtual stage, Stephen Donziger. Hi, Stephen. Hey, how are you? Good, you. Thank you so much for your patience. We ran long. No problem. Is your, Yeah, good to see you. It's working back now. Okay, great. Okay, okay I'm sorry. Do you want to just start again with your reminder of what had happened, that sure. you're the only lawyer to... Yeah. The, the appeal before the U.S. Supreme Court, I'm a lawyer, and it had to do with the fact that I was targeted um, with the nation's first private corporate prosecution, which led to almost three years of detention. Um, this happened, this began in the summer of 2019 after I'd helped indigenous peoples win a $10 billion, you know, historic pollution judgment against Chevron and, and the Amazon of Ecuador. And that, that case has been affirmed on appeal by six appellate courts. But Chevron went after me in a civil case in New York trying to knock me out of the case. And that, you know, led to a series of legal maneuvers where they demanded my computer. I appealed an order where they, you know, it's an, it was unprecedented, unheard of to for a lawyer to have to turn over his confidential case file to opposing counsel. And while I appealed that order from a pro-Chevron judge, um, the judge charging with criminal contempt of court for not obeying an order I was appealing to a higher court, that led to my almost three years of detention on a misdemeanor contempt charge, um, completely unfounded charge. It was rejected by the U.S. attorney for prosecution. It was filed by this judge, Judge Kaplan. Um, and ultimately, after the case was rejected for prosecution, Judge Kaplan um, appointed a private Chevron lawyer to prosecute me in the name of the U.S. government. That's, that's why I was locked up. And he also appointed a, a judge, a colleague of his, a good friend of his, Loretta Preska, who's a big leader of the Federalist Society. And there was what I believe was a collusive effort by Chevron, its lawyers, uh, these two judges and this Chevron prosecutor to basically silence my advocacy by detaining me um, on false charges. 
And, you know, this just ended about a year ago. Meantime, I appealed this whole. And you went to jail. And I went to jail 45 days in Danbury. And I was, you know. Prison, I should say, right? Prison. prison yeah. Federal prison. And, and, was, and she also, one more thing, I just have to add this because it always, I think it just shows you what type of person you're we're dealing with or system. But Preska said that you needed um, a two by four between the eyes when she was delivering your sentence. Yeah. Yeah. She's. Proverbial. She did call it the proverbial two by four. Proverbial two by four. As if I'm the one violating the rule of law. I mean, the whole thing they did targeting me was a violation of the rule of law. In any event, um, I appealed this uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court ultimately. And the court today, or I should say yesterday, turned down my appeal. They didn't actually consider the appeal. We filed a petition for certiorari. They wouldn't take, you know, they take very few appeals. My appeal got a lot of traction because there were several. Um, very prominent lawyers, I would say an all-star team of lawyers from the left, the right, the middle, backed me because this what they did was so offensive to the rule of law. It really was beyond politics. Um, it turns out that two justices, uh, conservative justices, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, of all people, um, wrote a, a dissent of the decision to, to not accept my appeal. And it was I thought beautifully written, completely supportive of me, and basically said the whole case is unconstitutional and illegal. And, and as Gorsuch said, the, the Constitution does not tolerate what happened here. But what, what was shocking to me, and first I was appreciative of the fact that that dissent was written. What was really shocking to me is that none of the other justices um, joined them. I mean, all you need is four justices for a case to be accepted on appeal. I'll point out that none of the three liberal Justices, you know, Sotomayor, um, Kagan, and Jackson uh, stepped up for me, or, you know, forget me, stepped up for the rule of law because this is so outrageous. And then the other conservatives, you know, Sam Alito and Clarence Thomas and Amy Coney Barrett also didn't join them. So I find it kind of surprising that, that only two um, really supported the idea that this private corporate prosecution should be overturned. Now, and that the, they were the conservatives. That's the weird thing, but or maybe you know, not the weird thing. I mean, it's, look, you might disagree with their principles and their philosophy, and I do, but they are, I think, principled when they believe in something. They will go after it. And we've seen this in, in a negative way, in my opinion, in many cases over the last two years. I think the liberal justices are much more transactional. And, you know, and, and I'll also say this, you know, people talk about a liberal conservative split on the Supreme Court, you know, six conservatives, three liberals. I mean, those are just labels. I mean, what really happens is on social issues, there is a split. On economic policy issues, on corporate issues, there usually isn't. You know, they're all walk in lockstep. So, you know, anyway, bottom line, Katie, is that Private corporate prosecutions as a result of this refusal to take my appeal are now essentially legalized in the United States. I mean, I'm the only one. We're raising uh, resources to fight this. We don't want this to happen to me again. It could or anyone else. Um, you know, we look at what's happening in Atlanta with 42 people charged with domestic terrorism, most peaceful protesters of the cop city police academy, we're seeing an increasingly aggressive corporate police judiciary assault on advocacy, I should say progressive advocacy in this country. And it's frightening. And my case is 
a key component of that. And, you know, it could happen again. And we need to be aware of this case. We need to be aware of the battle that is ongoing to make sure it doesn't happen again. And of course, the larger battle to make sure Chevron pays the judgment in Ecuador. It's using this case to try to avoid paying the people, the indigenous peoples in the Amazon that it poisoned, which really prompted this whole assault on me. Mm. And can you just remind people what they did, Chevron? Sure, thank you. So Chevron, well, Texaco, which is now Chevron, um, Texaco went into Ecuador's Amazon in the 1960s, built hundreds of oil wells, and over roughly a 25-year period, deliberately dumped as part of its engineering design billions of gallons of cancer-causing toxic waste onto indigenous ancestral lands into waterways that indigenous groups and non-indigenous farmer communities were relying on for their drinking water, for their bathing and their fishing. They essentially took an area that had been pristine, an ecosystem that had been pristine for millennia and wrecked it in 10 years. And the end result down in Ecuador is that hundreds, thousands of people have gotten sick. Many have gotten cancer and died Chevron lost the legal case in the court of its choosing down in Ecuador. They wanted it there. They accepted jurisdiction. And instead of paying the judgment, they went after me here in the United States, resulting in my detention, resulting in this, you know, really, I would say, disastrous abandonment of the rule of law by our own Supreme Court and allowing a corporation to act in the name of, they didn't just prosecute me, but they acted in the name of the United States government. I mean, you had a Chevron lawyer on a legal brief saying, um, you, you know, it was like Rita Glavin, United States of America, like she was a real prosecutor. Um, and, you know, my detention, by the way, even if I had done something wrong, and I don't believe I did, in any event, I was appealing it. I wasn't thumbing my nose at the court. I was acting as a responsible lawyer. And, um, you know, they locked me up. No lawyer charged with my contempt charge had ever been locked up pre-trial. In the history of our country, I, I spent over two years and two months on a misdemeanor with a maximum sentence of six months. I spent over four times that amount prior to my trial, locked up at home with an ankle bracelet. And then she still gave me, Judge Preska still gave me the maximum six-month sentence. And I ended up, you know, almost three years in detention on a charge that where the maximum sentence is six months. It was a pure oil industry-driven political retaliation against a successful environmental lawyer, justice lawyer, and human rights advocate. By the way, I have a, I have a family. You know, I have a, a wife and a, a son who's now 16, and this didn't just hurt me. It hurt my family, hurt my son, hurt everyone who cared about me and cared about the people of Ecuador, and deprived my clients of one of their main advocates for a number of years, you know, I wasn't able to travel, still can't travel, by the way, they won't return my passport. But look, the larger issue is, you know, our Supreme Court is duty bound. It's our highest court. The, the, their mission is to protect the rule of law. And what we're finding more and more with this decision and others is the court is actually not doing its duty. It's not protecting the rule of law. And it is abandoning the rule of law for purposes of expediency, politics, you know, corporate power, influence, um, whatever the reason. I mean, I'll point out that I was, you know, I'm litigating against Chevron now for 28 years. Um, they haven't paid anything for but they made, an, they've been donating roughly $200,000 a year to the Supreme Court Foundation 
which very few people know even exists. There's a foundation that raises millions of dollars a year for the ostensible purpose of preserving the history of the court and promoting the rule of law. How ironic. And so Chevron, you know, their general counsel is going to all these gala dinners once a year with the justices. The people of Ecuador don't get that opportunity. It's inappropriate. That foundation, by the way, should be shut down. But why am I, do I have a case against Chevron before the Supreme Court and Chevron's donating money to the Supreme Court Foundation and Chevron's top lawyer sits on the board of trustees of the Supreme Court Foundation? It's all wrong at, 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 at a deep level. And look, I respect the rule of law. You know, I actually believe there are a lot of good judges in this country. There's a lot of space in the legal, in the court system in this country to do good, to to at least try to achieve justice with fair judges. But increasingly, you know, we're we're running into problems because there's so many right-wing activists, ideologically driven judges now in the federal judiciary, you know, several of whom are on the Supreme Court right now, that it is very, very difficult to use courts to achieve justice, to carry out, you know, the aspirations of justice that so many millions of Americans have. So, you know, my case needs to be pushed. By the way, we're going to international fora. Um, I've got a a team of international lawyers ready to help. Anything you want to say to these liberal judges? Become a truth teller. Like, really do your job. Uphold the law regardless of the powers and influences that are being put upon you. I I just find, like I get people have different judicial philosophies, but I don't see differences with the idea that a judge-driven private corporate prosecution by the very company that lost the civil judgment in Ecuador against the lawyer who won the judgment, locking him up, I, I don't see how there can be an argument about that. That's not consistent with the rule of law. So I'm disappointed and the liberals, and I hope they do a better job going forward. Um, but the larger point is we're not giving up. You know, we're going to keep fighting in wherever we can in other courts to hold this government accountable for its violations of human rights and the rule of law as regards lawyers on this case fighting Chevron for justice in the Amazon. Can Merrick Garland do anything or he's not going to do anything? I mean, is that the... Of course, Merrick Garland could do something. I mean, as you know, because you helped so much, Katie, when I was detained, but we had asked Merrick Garland for a number of months to intervene and block this weird animal, this private prosecution, and he wouldn't. And, you know, when we appealed to the Supreme Court, we were hoping the DOJ, his agency, would write a brief supporting us. They didn't. They supported Chevron and Judge Kaplan. So I'm disappointed in Merrick Garland. You know, I, I would say the same thing to him that I just said about the three liberal Supreme Court justices is like, why work so hard your whole life to get to that position and not really, you know, implement the law and the rule of law without fear or favor? And what that means is you got to help vulnerable people. You know, I'm an individual. I'm not even in a law firm. Okay. I work and you've for, been disbarred. And I've been disbarred. I work for years out of my apartment. My clients are even, you know, they're far more vulnerable than me. I mean, they have no money and very little support. The the indigenous peoples of the Amazon who are being poisoned by Chevron's pollution. And they wanted you to hand over your communications with them, which would have put them at risk. We would have put their lives at risk. And I'll say, you know, we can't have a system, okay, where 
there's sort of one rule of law for the wealthy and powerful and a different one for the vulnerable and the marginalized. And that's what I'm seeing over and over again in this case and others. And it takes, it takes courage. It shouldn't, but it, it does take some measure of courage by Merrick Garland, by judges, not just at the Supreme Court level, at other levels, to really adhere to the law without fear or favor and apply it equally. We all, there's, there should be equal justice under the law. And obviously I've been singled out and targeted um, and the Supreme Court didn't help me. By the way, I still want to just mention again, I appreciate Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh for taking a principled position, really do. I want to recognize that, okay? We're not going to just throw out the whole court on every issue here. And who thought it would be them, but yeah. They did They did good. They did the right thing. In this one instance, but it's really disappointing that the other seven did not. I actually thought they were going to take the case and that they were going to rule in my favor 9 nothing. I don't know what the argument is. Yeah, what was their argument? I don't know, because when they deny a case, they don't really write about it unless there's a dissent, and the dissent supported me. No, I don't know. I, I, you know, they take very few cases. Maybe they just didn't think this was a good vehicle because I'm an unpopular person in those circles. Yeah, they don't want to piss off the Supreme Court Foundation funders. Yeah, and they like to protect each other. They should, maybe they want to protect Judge Kaplan. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know. Because Preska was a Bush appointee, right? But Kaplan is a Clinton appointee. That's exactly right. They're both of the same philosophy. And also remember that that. I mean, I'm, this is pure speculation. It's probably just ridiculous to mention. But, you know, Justice Sotomayor worked in the same building with Judge Kaplan for many years. She comes out of the Second Circuit Court of Appeals in New York. And like, you know, I, I, you feel it when you're in the New York courthouse. I mean, the judges just take care of each other. And that might have had something to do with it. You think that there'd be some prof- I mean, I guess it is. It's because people are corrupt and power hungry. But you think that maybe there'd be some professional courtesy or solidarity with you as a as a former lawyer. I mean, I guess they just are accepting the smeared version of you, but you'd think that maybe they would get that this is not something that should be done to lawyers. You would, wouldn't you? But, you know, there's been a whole, one thing I've noticed with how I've been treated by the bar, you know, it's, it's dominated by the corporate firms. The corporate firms make their money representing wealth and power in corporations, and they hate it. When upstart lawyers who don't, you know, especially ones who had, you know, I come out of the privileged part of the profession. I graduated from Harvard Law School and they really hate it. They just hate it so much to see someone with that background fighting for justice for the marginalized. I mean, and not only fighting, but doing it successfully, it drove them crazy. And they just felt, it felt very like psychologically, um, terrifying i think to them and i always felt i always felt these tar this targeting of me was was coming from a weird you know obviously there was a political purpose to destroy me and destroy the case but it was also like there was this weird kind of emotional psychological element in their lawyers where they just really were after me uh, as was judge kaplan i mean there was just gratuitous attacks on me um, and they have been for years i'm still under attack i mean they they pay Google a million bucks a year to just put propaganda out about how I'm a criminal. Right. So that comes up first in your search. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's ongoing again, which is why, you know, we're still fighting and need support. But yeah, it's 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 an intense existence. It's complicated. But luckily I have a ton of support from, you know, 
from independent journalists like you, from my family, from no, the Nobel, 68 Nobel laureates, you know, 120 NGOs, you know, there's some 10 members of Congress have written letters. So like, it's not like I'm alone, but it is, it is, it's bargaining me and it's, it's something I deal with pretty much every day. Yeah. Anything you want to say about East Palestine or any other issues? Okay. I'll, I'll say this about East, East Palestine. What a tragedy. It was not an accident. Okay. That was the result of deliberate decisions um, by Norfolk Southern Rail to not invest in braking systems, technology, sensors on the tracks that would have pre- prevented the accident. It is a case, I, I consider it a corporate crime. And I, if I were a prosecutor, I would open an investigation because I, I think there are potential criminal charges against company executives for what happened. I know we're not going to talk about it in too much detail today, but I just want to point out, if you take my bizarre private corporate prosecution and detention, and then you throw in the cop city issue where 42 protesters have been charged with terrorism, face 35-year sentences. Then on top of that, you throw in the Ohio train derailment, where I actually believe hundreds, if not thousands of people over the years are going to become afflicted with diseases, including cancer, and face the possibility of premature death. You put all those things together, you know, what do you have in common? You basically have corporations running roughshod over the people with government not doing its job of protecting the average person. And I would say, I'm an old dude now. You know, I've been doing this a long time. I'm 61. The thing I've noticed the most over the trajectory of my career is the increasing deepening of corporate influence over our governmental structures and institutions. You know, and it's not just the president. It's all three branches of government. It's penetrated the judiciary. And you are seeing increasingly bold manifestations of corporate power expressed through judges, the police, and other government organs in a way I did not see in the 1970s and 1980s and even the 1990s. I mean, it was always there, but it's really in full bloom right now. And I think we need to understand how to connect the dots between these various phenomena to understand the framework of what's really going on in this country. It's not fun to watch and it's scary, but we can deal with it. We just have to see it for what it is and organize to deal with it. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time. 